Italian Wine Podcast. Chin Chin with Italian Wine People. the show, here's a shout out to our new sponsor, Ferro Wine. Ferro Wine has been the largest wine shop in Italy since 1920. They have generously supplied us with our new t-shirt. Would you like one? Just donate 50 euros and it's all yours. Plus, we'll throw in our new book, Jumbo Shrimp Guide to International Grape Varieties in Italy. For more info, go to italianwinepodcast.com and click donate. Or check out Italian Wine Podcast on Instagram. feel as if I'm I'm having a, one of those menopausal hot flashes, but I haven't reached menopause yet. I've been doing that for the last several months and Savannah's quite worried about me. Honestly, you know, I, I literally will put a pen down and turn around and then get, and I won't know where I've put it, you know. Oh, I thought you meant menopausal hot flashes. <laughs> no, I can do anything for a hot flash, I'll tell you. <laughs> Round one. Welcome to the Italian Wine Podcast. Today, to honor the Italian Wine Podcast's fourth year anniversary, I get to talk to Monty Walden, who has been with us since the first show on March 2nd, 2017, I think. And this is very exciting. Uh, Monty is a wine writer, a TV personality, a photographer, and biodynamic wine proponent, who is usually the interviewer on this podcast, never the interviewee. So yeah, hi, Monty. <laughs> hi there. How are you doing? Are you? Is that your name? Joy? Joy? I think we've met before, haven't we? Oh, Jesus, Monty. <laughs> I've already ruined your podcast, I'm afraid. I know. Round two. I have questions, I promise. So before we get going, I wanted to tell you, uh, no, <laughs> I wanted you to tell <laughs> Oh, God. Round three. So before we go, I wanted to you to tell me a little bit about how you got into wine and how you came to live in Montalcino. Montalcino. That's the reason why we don't do this every day. Uh, the, the short one about how I got into wine was um, my French wasn't particularly good at school. I went to boarding school, very posh uh, boarding school, but very liberal boarding school. And uh, my French teacher, who was actually French, um, her husband was the physics teacher, another one of my very bad subjects. And she said, I really must go to France for a summer uh, to, to um, brush up my French. And ended up in Bordeaux, um, to cut a long story short, by purely by accident. Uh, although I had made wine myself at home from sort of those kits that you used to get from the chemist or the, um, I don't know what you call the pharmacy. And um, because my cousin, my my father's side of the family, he'd made wine at home and I thought I'd try and give it a, give it a try myself, never dreaming that I would end up in Bordeaux. And I just found I had a bit of an affinity for wine. And it's one of the things I, I felt I could understand quite easily, relatively. I wasn't always the best student at school. I mean, I wasn't like completely stupid, but I wasn't, um, I wasn't a brilliant student, put it that way. And it just felt like a good fit for me. And I kept going back to Bordeaux and then various other places around the world where there were vineyards, trying to learn as much as I could. And, and there we go. And I got into writing a little bit by accident. I can't even remember how I got into writing, but somebody asked me to write an article or something. And um, ended up writing for, I've written for Chances and Decanter and various other publications. And I feel incredibly lucky to do what I do. I mean, um, in the wine industry, you, uh, you get to travel and see beautiful places. You meet really interesting people who have multi-skills, you know, whether it's about biology or chemistry or geology uh, or fi the financial side of, of, of wine. So it's a sort of multi-discipline game, really, and every day's a every day's a different day. I've never ever had a single regret about um, being involved in the wine industry. 
I, I feel really, really privileged and it's fun. And um, so, yeah, there you go. Next question. Okay. Well, let's, uh, let's, let's move along. I, let's talk about cow shit. So, <laughs> um, as you know, okay, I've seen your BBC four, I think it is a series where you buy a vineyard. It's cool. It's yeah, BBC is the, is the public broadcaster, which everybody can watch wherever we contribute to. And then it's actually was channel was a, a documentary on, on channel four called Chateau Monty, where I rented a, a vineyard in, in the Roussillon region of France and tried to I had a lady, uh, a helper, in in in, in inverted commas. She, she wasn't hugely helpful, to be honest. I mean, she was not really involved in wine or really that interested in wine. But um, anyway, we um, made a made a wine there, and um, it was broadcast as a six part series on primetime TV and on Channel Four in the, in the UK. And I think it got obviously screened. I think in probably in other countries as well. But that was another. Another fun project as well, to be honest. Yeah, it was super entertaining, and I just couldn't stop watching it. You did all sorts of crazy things, like deterring wild boar by asking the huntsmen to pee in jars so that you could spray it around the vineyard. Yeah, that kind of works. It does work, though, because they're very, obviously, they've been, they've spent their whole life is sniff, snuffling around at ground level. So if you pee in strategic areas, then they'll know that humans are around and they'll be just a little bit more... Uh, a little bit more careful, a bit more wary, and we'll stay a little bit further away. I mean, they can cause a lot of damage to vineyards, and they can certainly cause a lot of damage to humans. I mean, they can easily kill you, not because they want to, but just because they're scared, and they'll bump you out of the way with their tusks and all the rest of it, and you can get trampled and, and end up with a punctured lung or something, which is not really what you want. So, um, yeah, a little bit of micturation in the vineyard is never never a bad thing with boar. I know, it was fascinating, honestly. And then you collected cow pats from local farmers to create your biodynamic preparations. And the one that you were mixing, uh, that I, okay, you fermented cow poo and nettle and chamomile to make a tea. But then I wanted to ask you, what, what was that spray for exactly? And what are some other preparations that are quite useful? Because, you know, it's, it's, it's really interesting, you know, all of these things. I mean, it, it seems complicated, but it, it's also, if you know how to do it, it seems like anybody could do it. Yeah, I mean, uh, the teas are really, uh, are actually, as you say, they're really easy. I mean, if you can make a cup of tea at home, you can certainly make a tea for a vineyard. So um, anybody that drinks chamomile tea before they go to bed, you do it as a relaxing thing. You know, my partner, she's a female, sometimes she feels a bit, you know, every so often, and she'll have a chamomile tea. And it's the same for your vineyard. If your vineyard is stressed because it's very bright or very hot, um, dry conditions, just spraying a, a, a tea or a tisane, as they call it, um, like chamomile on the vineyard, just gives them a little bit of a respite and stops them from um, from stressing. And it's a very cost-effective way of, um, of treating your vineyard with, I think, um, apart from respect, but also with, with common sense. Um, you don't need to blast the vineyard every five seconds, but... Um, these teas are very useful. I mean, nettle tea is a very important one. You know, nettles have been important in um, human development. They're full of nutrients, you know, nettle soup, that kind of thing. Um, and so if you spray the soil or the vine with a nettle uh, infusion or tea, obviously when it, um, you make a tea with warm or hot water, um, but you don't spray it when the, when the liquid is still hot. You let it cool down, obviously. Um, but you're just giving them a little bit of a boost um and to stop them stressing and um if you do get stress in a vine that can that can affect the flavor you can maybe get slightly edgy tannins or a little bit of unripeness or greenness so it's again it's a cost-effective way of of uh, working with your vineyard using plants nettle 
to cure your plants, which are the vines. And that, for, for me, makes a lot of common sense. I'm, I'm assuming the fermented cow poo, it does something. And you put it in horns. And I want to know why you put it in horns and why it's so good for the vines. Because it's like the most famous thing when it comes to biodynamics. Yeah, well, the preparation you're talking about is called horn manure. Uh, and basically what you do is you take some cow manure, so from a lady cow, a female cow, preferably when she's in milk, and you put um, that manure into a cow horn, which is like a sort of a sheath, and you bury it at about, I don't know, a foot or, or more uh, in some nice earthy ground. Uh, and you do that over winter. You bury it in autumn and, div- and dig it up in the springtime. And the idea there is that you're going to create a sort of um, enhanced manure that when you mix it in water by hand or, or just stirring it with even a, a stirring machine, you stir it a little way um, for an hour and then you spray it lightly on the vineyard, on the soil. And the idea there is it's really encouraging the, the, the vine or the, any plant that you're growing at, at the time to dig down and encourage it to dig down and make a more complex or deeper or both uh, root system. Uh, and that's good for the vine. It's like a foundation for a house. If you've got solid foundations, which is a solid root, root system, your vine can it can start choosing the nutrients that it actually wants to absorb or use in, t- in terms of its own particular growth. And that's um, really, really important. Uh, one issue that we have in, in all farming, not just wine growing, is com- very compact soil. And by spraying this um, nutrient and microorganism-rich spray on the soil is you're creating tiny tiny little pockets of air in the soil to make it more spongy, which makes drainage more easy, which means that there's less erosion. With less erosion, there's less loss of nutrients that your vines need. And if your vines don't have nutrients, they start stressing and they're more disease resistant. So it's a really simple way of keeping the the understory, the, uh, the, the, the root system of the vineyard, the foundations of the house, nice and safe and strong. And it's very cost-effective. I mean, to make a to make a horn manure spray with a with a horn and a bit of a cow cow pat. I mean, it's um it's just like minimal cost. I mean, I don't know. Maybe you get a, a, a cow horn from a neighbouring farmer for free, um, and a bit of cow manure, which is for free. You can do it yourself. You don't need any machinery. A kid can do it. An old person can do it. All you need is a shovel and a bit of elbow grease. And I like again the idea that. You can be entirely self-reliant. You're not um, feeding money to a faceless multinational um, concern producing chemical fertilizers, artificial fertilizers. You're doing it all yourself, um, which is better for your bottom line. It's better for your local community, and it's better for the soil, and it's better for the for the wine itself, for the vines and the wine. So it makes sense again for me. So, okay, the other thing I wanted to ask is in between the rows, this is another biodynamic thing that I noticed you, you talk about, you know, clover and... And putting, you know, bumper crops, I think you call them, in between. Cover crops. Cover crops, sorry. That's okay. We do actually put them in with bumper cars. We actually go through the, the vine rows sowing the seeds for the cover crops on bumper. No, I'm checking. Um, but this is the cover crops. Um, so basically, people don't know what cover crops are. I'm sure you all do. But um, between the vine rows, you can obviously plow the vine rows. Um, but you really don't always want to do that in all situations. Sometimes you need to. Uh, but the idea is by sowing what are called cover crops between the rows, you can sow flowers which attract beneficial insects, which means that it's much harder for potential pests to colonize completely the vineyard. They may There may be a few pests, but not um, too many because there's competition. Uh, you can sow cover crops 
that produce deep roots under the into the into the soil, which allows air oxygen to get into the soil, allows better drainage, so there's less erosion, and you can sow covered crops um, to provide certain nutrients like nitrogen, for example. If you sow nitrogen fixing cover crops, um, they'll give a boost uh, to the vineyard and the vine. If you have a, a weak vineyard that lacks food, and that's not always the case often in wine, people do tend to go forward. Um, but you're just providing a few nutrients for for the vines. And again, the, the, the nice thing about these things is with soluble fertilizers, the vine absorbs those soluble fertilizers or chemical fertilizers by osmosis when it rains, they're, they're soluble. And the vine doesn't can't really stop itself from taking up those nutrients and you get more vigor, you get thinner cell walls in the in the vine and its um its leaves and its uh, and, the, and the grapes so you have um more risk of rot because the the, the vine is less robust. Whereas in the organic and biodynamic way of doing it, with cover crops, you sow some nice plants between the vineyard. Some of them will give nitrogen to the vineyard, and the vine can choose how much nitrogen it, it might want to have. It might be a bit hungry, and it can choose uh, what it eats. It's not being force-fed. So again, if you want to talk about intelligent wine growing, you've got to have intelligent vines, and vines that can choose what they eat are more intelligent, I think, than a vine that is on a drip feed. My question is, I've, I don't know where I heard this, but some wineries are actually planting foods, you know, uh, vegetables and things in between the rows. Is that is that something? Yeah, I mean, some of the some of the I mean, cover crops like I mean, if you sow barley, for example, you could use that to make well, obviously barley. You can use barley for various things. The, the normally. Though what you don't want is too much compaction between between the vine rows. Normally, you would with the, with something like barley, you would actually cut that in at some stage during the season, and that when the stalks of the barley fall over the fall to the ground, they protect it. So if it rains before, say in the in the autumn, and you've got those the barley flattened on the ground, you'll get less erosion because there'll be less splashing, for example, and slowly but surely the stalks of the barley will rot down in a non-bad way and they'll become hummus in the soil eventually. So it's kind of quite a joined up, um, simple way of managing your vineyard. Um, also having cover crops between your, your vineyard, between your vine rows means you get less erosion because if you have a naked vineyard with just bare soil uh, and it rains and you're on a slope and most the, the best vineyards in the world generally are on sloping um, terrain, if there's no ground cover when it rains, you are going to lose your your soil. And so having a, a carpet or a mat of vegetation that just buffers falling rain from above, it means that there's less risk of, uh, of erosion. Once you once your soil is gone, you can't go down to the local do-it-yourself um, garden centre and say, please, can you give me some three million-year-old or six or five million-year-old Pleistocene uh, clay, please, because it's not going to he's not going to have it in stock. I'm afraid. So there you go. Is it something that's viable for larger, like economically speaking? Is it, you know, can large vineyards go biodynamic or is it just not feasible? Like, what do you say to that? No, I mean, we've got some very large vineyards now, like in Chile, for example, that are about 600 hectares that are that are biodynamic. Doing biodynamics is actually very, very easy. It's similar to organics in the sense that um, you don't, uh, organics is a lot about don't do this, don't do that. So don't use herbicides. Don't use systemic uh, sprays. Or don't um, use X, Y, Z. And biodynamics is a little bit of that, but it's more about do this, do this, and do this. So do make sure that you have cover crops uh, between your your vine rows, biodiversity for uh, to make sure that there's no erosion, that you're getting air into the soil, and all of these things are very um, so multitasking uh, um, uh, cover cropping. 
is actually doing two or three things that are beneficial for your vineyard, not just one thing uh, in your vineyard. And really, you want to see your vineyard as a, a an entire organism. So that's not just the vineyard bit of your land, but it's all the land that you have. Maybe it's spare fields or a bit of forest or just a bit of scrub ground. All of that is part of your terroir or everything. It's not like the vineyard is just the only thing you're thinking about. You're, you're saying, yeah, we have a vineyard. This is what give us, gives us the money, but we have a little bit of forest. We have a little bit of biodiversity. What can we do to make our little bit of land that's not vineyard? What can we do with that to improve the situation of our vineyard? Or, and if it's not directly about the vineyard, just about the, the, the land entity that you have in general um, in terms of biodiversity, because the more biodiversity you have in terms of I know birds, insects, microbiology, the more complex your terroir becomes, there's more of a story to tell when the journalists come around, but there's also more of a story that you can benefit from by treating your land mass as something very, very diverse and diverse pieces of that land mass. Um, Some of it's productive, the vineyard, some of it is wild maybe. And uh, it's a nice way, again, of looking at your estate about you see your terroir in a different way. Um, It's not just about the vineyard, it's about the whole land holding that you have how how long does it actually take for a regular vineyard to become biodynamic to convert like a year two years okay so legally it's three years so if you're using herbicides and pesticides etc you switch to biodynamics you have to stop using those and three years left, you get certified, which is done, which is done by an independent body, which is called a certification body. So you can be certified organic or certified biodynamic, and they, they follow international rules or national rules. That takes uh, three years from start to finish. And so, in the in the beginning of the fourth year, you are you can then uh, say that you are certified organic or certified biodynamic. Okay, biodynamics, of course, uh, is connected to Rudolf Steiner and this sort of religious side, right? And so, what do you say to people to separate the sort of esoteric stuff? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I just see—I I don't see it as any kind of religion. I mean, I, I'm quite Cartesian. I mean, I, I got into biodynamics because I tasted a biodynamic wine, and it was so much better than the other wines that I've been tasting at the time which was in Bordeaux, and I'd spent a lot of time in Bordeaux. I'm in the practical area of the biodynamic um, world. I'm not really into the really esoteric stuff. I mean, people who are a little bit esoteric, that's absolutely fine. But I'm quite Cartesian about that. I see biodynamics as a bunch of tools that I can or cannot use. And I using those tools, I want to understand them, how, how I can get the best out of them. And also empirically, you can see the differences that biodynamics makes in terms of, I said before, you know, stronger rooting, Vines that are not over vigorous, they they found their balance. That the uh, the ripeness um, levels of the pip, as well as the skin and the juice, all tie up. So you've got extra. It's in terms of red wines, for example, you've got red wines which are obviously maceration wines. They have to soak in the tank with everything, with the pips and all the rest of it. If you have unripe pips and alcohol, which is being made by the yeast during fermentation, alcohol is a solvent. So if you have green pips because your vineyard wasn't in balance, you're going to get green tannins. So, and with biodynamics, you're not going to get that if you do it properly. Obviously, if you don't do it properly, you maybe not get the best results, but you probably get slightly better results than, say, a conventional farmer. And uh, for me, obviously, the mantra that wine is made in the vineyard, it's very much like that in biodynamics because you really can do so much with the very basic biodynamic tools in terms of deeper rooting, more complex rooting, more erect uh, physiological. The way the vine actually grows itself, if you look at its shoots rather than the shoots drooping over the top wire, the shoots are really pointing up towards the sun. The, the roots are really deep or more complex. You have a, a vine that's really extending itself. It's got long legs. 
It's got high arms uh, and it's got a, a, a tummy in the middle, which is where the grapes are, and that has a really strong stomach. You know, if somebody punches that stomach, it's really robust. So this idea that you've got um, plants that are looking after themselves, they're growing in the right way, they, they know where to put their roots, they know where to put their shoots, they know how many grapes they can carry to do the job properly because their job is not making wine, their job is about making ripe pips in their, in their berries, quotes to have babies, and that's really what they're trying to do. And biodynamics makes that a little bit easier for them. It just allows them that freedom to, to do what they really want to do. And, and I think the majority, I think, of biodynamic growers that I know having been following it for a long, long time, the vast majority switch to biodynamics because they, they like the taste of the wines that they have. It. They're not really into the woo-woo stuff. Um, they, they're doing it because they're in a results-driven business and they get results with biodynamics. And a lot of them say, Monty, I don't know how this works really, but it does. It's not very scientific, but that's what people say. So I was going to ask you a couple more questions, but you know what? We're running out of time because we have, uh, you have an, not me, you have an interview with uh, another producer (laughs) in about 10 minutes. So I'll skip to the end. I wanted to ask you actually, oh, there's so many things I want to ask you. I I just, I don't even have the time. Okay. So (laughs) what's your favorite interview over four years? What interview? I don't, honestly, I just don't know. I mean, I, I, I've, I've had interviews where I kind of not dreaded, but I thought, well, I don't know how this one's going to go. And often the ones that you are a little bit fearful about are the, are the best ones. I mean, there have been so many. I mean, I think, I don't know how many interviews I've done, but I, when I was younger, I used to spend a lot of time literally going around Bordeaux, knocking on people's doors or making appointments and interviewing people, obviously with a pen and a piece of paper um, at the time and, and with a really probably horrible haircut in those days. But it's just, I'm curious about how people make wine. It's it's like, a, I guess, if a foodie would, would love to hear the recipe for, well, how did you make that amazing omelette, you know? And you want to know where did the eggs come from? What color was the shell? How big was the yolk? How did you crack it open? What temperature? You know, all that sort of stuff. And I like asking winemakers questions. And um, and they often, not all of them, but the vast majority are very happy and very, very happy to share their knowledge and tell you exactly what they do and why. Uh, and the best winemakers, I think, have a grasp of the technical aspects of winemaking. Obviously, it's a, it's a living product. You know, it's without yeast and, and bacteria and, and all sorts of things, it doesn't come to life. And you have to be empirical as well in terms of the costs as well of, of the actual grape growing, you know, in terms of your labor costs and, and all the rest of it. So you have to be a multitasker as a wine grower. Um, you need to um, embrace many disciplines, you know, from biology to geology uh, finance, marketing, uh, all sorts of things. You know, and people having an affinity with people, whether they're your, your, whether they're your employees or they're your importer or distributor, and maybe a foreign country that you can't get to, or maybe don't speak the language so well with. And I think it's a marvelous industry, um, full of a lot of very, very interesting people. And interviewing people is, I find fascinating. I like to hear people's stories and I like to see hear them bring to life what their everyday reality is I find it really interesting all right so penultimate question then this is a little bit on the lighter side so I had to try and dig some dirt up on you which I found nothing but I did find a B-Dale's website your old school <laughs> and it said that you were asked to bring something you had made to the B-Dale's entry tests in 1980. And a 12-year-old you arrived clutching a bottle of your homemade orange wine. Can you please elaborate on how you made this concoction? (laughs) You were 12. Yeah, I think it was made with some fruit juice 
uh, and some, I think, fruit juice and a bit of water and some yeast. It was a very long time ago, but I had to bring, um, I brought, I had made a chess table, I think, from my, my previous school, and I brought that and I brought some homemade wine. And somehow they allowed me into the school. It was a very creative school. It's called Beedales, and it's a co-educational school. It's a boarding school, and you could wear your own clothes. If you were a girl, you could wear a skirt or jeans or whatever it was. You didn't have to wear a uniform, nor did the boys. And um, it was a great place to to be because it allowed you, whatever you were good at, you were encouraged to follow it. And I wasn't always particularly academic, and I wasn't the worst in the, in, in the class. But as I said, I would, it was because my French wasn't that good, and my French teacher, who was French, told me to go to France and uh, thanks to her Odile she uh, she managed to get me to France and uh, and I discovered wine and um, never looked back so thanks Odile cool well honestly I appreciate you to, like talking to humoring me let's let's say <laughs> thank you for humoring me there's something I didn't mention you had written a book on biodynamics so my last thing will be to ask you where you can find your book what's what is it called and um, you know tell me where we can find you okay so the website is it's pretty it's free it's a free website it's not like a paywall it's just called um, www.chateaumonti.com and the book that I've written I've written quite a few books but the book um, if you want to know how biodynamics actually is is done it's a book called biodynamic wine and it's published in oxford from a company called infinite ideas and so i think it's probably about 15 pounds us pounds something like that but it tells you everything about you read some of it you narrated on the the podcast as well you narrated some chapters from that here as well did i okay oh yeah it was a while ago wasn't it yeah but it just tells you about the lunar cycles and the practical aspects of biodynamics it's really not a fundamentalist book it's 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 very very down to earth and easy to read if i say so myself um, i'm not a taliban as it when it comes to biodynamics for me it's a tool and i kind of explain the tools and um you can make your own minds up about whether it's um woo woo or whether it's common sense or, or whether probably it's a, a little bit of both but anyway um and i got into biodynamics as i said because i've worked for conventional wineries um and organic wineries in various places and the best quality for me was with the biodynamic wineries that I work for. And that's how I got into it because um, for me, um, having tried all the different ways of making the cake, the biodynamic cake was the best one. Cool. All right. No, thank you so much. And yeah, I guess that's that's all she wrote. I have one last question. You know, after four years of working with us here and, you know, having Stevie Kim as your, how scary, how scary, one to 10, how scary Stevie to work for? Uh, 375. <laughs> Listen to the Italian Wine Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We're on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Himalaya FM, and more. Don't forget to subscribe and rate the show. If you enjoy listening, please consider donating through italianwinepodcast.com. Any amount helps cover equipment, production, and publication costs. Until next time, cin cin.